0: Welcome to Daily Coast's The Brief, our weekly show about politics. Here, we'll discuss the issues that are driving the news as we fight for a more progressive America. I am Marcos Molitsis, the founder of Daily Coast, and your co-host, along with senior political writer Carrie Alaveld. If you want to join the conversation, we record the podcast live on YouTube and Facebook every Tuesday at 1:30 Pacific, 4:30 Eastern. Enjoy the show. Hello, everybody. Welcome to this week's edition of Daily Coast's The Brief, our weekly show about politics. I'm Marcos Molitzis. I'm here with Carrie Alleveld, and we have a great show for you today. We're gonna to be talking to political historian Kathleen Friedel about the potential of a Biden transformative presidency, as well as sort of kind of the collapse of the Republican Party, which is something she has been writing about recently. We're also going to be talking to Joan McCarter. She is a Daily co senior staff writer. She focuses on on Congress, and the Senate is sort of the center of the political world right now. I, I, in fact, I think it's where all the action is happening. So there's a lot of talk about about the Senate. So we have a great show. Lots to talk about. Carrie, how are you doing today? Just peachy. Peachy. Just in, just in peachy. Oh impeachment. <laughs> I um, shouldn't yeah. laugh I shouldn't Look, laugh that hard.
1: Bring on the dad jokes. There you go.
0: <laughs> so Carrie, so we're you know, impeachment started today. Yeah. And the Democrats had a fantastic opening sort of case to be made, yeah. and the Republicans had a very Trumpian. Trump had a very Trumpian response. Uh, I don't know where they dug up this lawyer, but we know that the A and B and the C teams didn't want to be part of it. And the D team got fired last week.
1: And the D team got fired and there wasn't an E and F team. So <laughs> no. I, don't know. I don't even know. You know, you go, you then you start looking, you start digging around and your what? What, what Trump did was he started digging around in the grab box of his, of his besties, you know, former lawyers and whatever, like, like Roger Stone, you know, and, Steve Bannon and these types of guys. I was like, oh yeah, this guy will do it. This will work.
0: Only the best. Only the best for Trump. (laughs) (laughs) So, um, what seems to be at least this is very early in the process. And as we record this, for those of you who are listening to the podcast, we record this on Tuesday. So a lot could happen in this in these next 24 hours. But as of now, by all indications, the Republicans are anti-conviction. Republicans remain anti-conviction. Carrie, do you really think they're going to go down with a ship? I mean, it's yes, <laughs> it I just do. Yes. Puzzles my mind.
1: Yes no it's it is just a stunner I mean first of all like it, it it's a level of stupidity frankly that is like you know, just eye opening, just jaw dropping. But on top of that, the bet- betrayal of the country that they're getting ready to take, you know, part in is just from a, from a national security standpoint. I mean, this guy, this guy has not only been impeached once and now twice, right? Um, but in the last impeachment, they predicted that, you know, Adam Schiff's closing arguments, he, he predicted that, Trump was a menace. And that if you didn't if you didn't teach him a lesson, if you didn't convict him, he was this was going to be a disaster for the country. And then what did he bring to the country? Disaster. Like the first tr- the first president inspired attack on the homeland, on the seat of national government. Right. that's never been done before. Um, and now the, and now. They're apparently just, I mean, you know, 45 of them have already voted to to set up this whole argument that supposedly you can't, you know, uh, convict a, a, a former president, a former official, which isn't true. There's nothing constitutionally. It's not and the, true.
0: And the Democrats did it. The House managers did a great job of pre rebutting that.
1: Well, and let's re- let's remember that that's a loophole that McConnell fa- manufactured. Mitch McConnell manufactured that loophole because he was actually impeached. While he was a sitting president, and then Mitch McConnell sat on that impeachment for you know at least a week to make sure that by the time they got to the trial, there would be no you know that he would be out of office, right So Mitch McConnell actually manufactured that constitutional loophole, which is a weak constitutional argument to begin with, but it's also completely fabricated uh, because because he didn't because Mitch McConnell didn't take it up thereby forcing the the right. fact that but Trump is out we, of office.
0: We can argue that obviously Trump is a disaster for the country. I think that's almost I mean, Republicans aren't even arguing against that anymore. They're, they've gone to full process argument. They know they cannot defend Trump on the merits. We can argue that Republicans will defend Trump just out of pure partisan allegiance, I guess. But Trump cost them the White House. Uh, the first I think only the third president to lose reelection in the last hundred years. Uh, he cost him the Senate. He cost him the House. He's <laughs> he's costing them suburban voters. He's costing them uh, youth voters. He's costing them voters of color, all the growth demographics. Trump is costing them. And yet, if they're not going to defend the country, you would think that at least they'd want to protect themselves. But well- that's not the case.
1: This is what happens when you have when you are a party of no ideas anymore. Right. They cannot conceive of what they're going to do to try and build a voting coalition moving forward without Trump that could potentially make them electable and and remaking the party in a way that it can attract more voters is going to be a years long process. That none of them have the entrepreneurial nature, the inspiration, the fresh ideas. To do Right. So the only the most entrepreneurial people at this moment are people like Senator Josh Hawley and Ted Cruz who want to double down on Trumpism in order to try to ride that tiger to their own elevation to president. Right. But they're not spouting any fresh ideas. They're just trying to ride the wave that someone else created. I mean, that's what they're trying to do.
0: Yeah. I mean, but do they think that wave actually still exists? <laughs> no, the,
1: listen, this is the problem with inertia, right? Yeah. If you don't have any fresh ideas, you just keep on moving in the same direction because you're too uninspired. You're too lazy. You don't you know, you're not capable of coming up with anything different. I mean, this is you know, they, they became a cult of personality party. And they've all just submitted to that. And frankly, not a single one of them has a fresh idea about how to get out of that that loop.
0: No, that's a good point. And in fact, as they sort of jostle for the 2024 nomination, which is a lot of what's driving a lot of this, uh, you see that they're all making the argument on that... Per- Cult of personality. It's who is the biggest defender of Trump, and that is sort of the argument. There's an assumption I think they're making that Trump won't run for re-election, and again, self-interest would say, "Yeah, (laughs) make sure he doesn't run again, right?" Then you can make that case. But the the (laughs) I just just blows my mind. I, I just I don't understand how simple logic, simple just self interest. And we're not. We haven't even talked about the problems that Republicans are having right now. Fundraising from their corporate PACs. Right. I mean, you still have right. that issue where they're saying as long as you're associating with uh with sedition and insurrection we're not going to give to you and i don't know if mcconnell has decided that it's all just temporary glitch and these people will quietly come back in the next few months or or what
1: can i tell you how they're trying to thread that needle and this is just a suspicion my suspicion is is that mcconnell is going to try to do just enough to be seen as reasonable enough that some of these corporate packs can come back some of them have already said they won't I think Microsoft came out, Microsoft
0: is one of them, well,
1: yeah, this week and said, or last week, maybe late last week, and said, We're just suspending donations to the GOP at this point, um, for this foreseeable future. I think they said until th- through 2022, right? But I think McConnell's just going to try to do enough, and then what you have is, and he should be. They, no one should be giving any money to this guy, but Senator Rick Scott, who's running the, you know, campaign arm of the, of the Senate caucus, of the Republican Senate caucus, he's a seditionist, right? He voted against certification. He's one of, he's one of the senators who went down that path. And so if you have, on the one hand, McConnell, who can bring money into his pack, and then you have, on the other hand, I mean, this again, this is just a theory. On the other hand, you have, uh, you know, Rick Scott, who's going to be working this other group of people. Maybe you can double dip from both donors by, and which this shouldn't be acceptable to anyone who doesn't want to give to the se- sedition caucus, right? It shouldn't be acceptable to anyone. But I, I feel like maybe that's what they're trying to do is divide and conquer in terms of fundraising. It could be a disaster. It might not work.
0: Yeah, it's it's. I I mean, again, there may be a bet that these corporate packs quietly <laughs> come back in six months and hope that nobody notices that they get credit for that initial uh, pause. But there actually isn't a practical uh, result. And, and right. there might be even be a little bit of a game of chicken going on, right, where these packs yeah. are telling McConnell to either convict or we don't come back. And McConnell's like, Are you really not going to come back when Democrats are are doing the sort of things that are anti your agenda, uh, making it easier for people to organize that sort of thing? The
1: stock market's looking good. I mean, you know, I mean like the stock market has been I mean, they had there have been these moments, right? These hiccups with uh, with this whole gain stop situation that I barely understand, frankly. But um, <laughs> but overall, the stock market has still done quite good. And and it's and it's uh, it's increased since since Trump left. So, you know, they were they traders celebrated the moment that Joe Biden won the election and celebrated it when he got in into office.
0: I mean, he's showering the economy with two trillion dollars of stimulus. I think I <laughs> If your that. business. You're happy with they, that. They love So, Terry, I think it's time now. I don't think it's time. It is time for us to bring our first guest. Uh, totally excited to talk about her. She's actually um, just written about the sort of crack up of the Republican Party. So we're going to talk to her about Joe Biden. We're going to talk to her about the Republican Party. She is political historian Kathleen Friedel. And thank you so much for joining us, Kathleen.
2: It's my pleasure to join you.
1: <laughs> hi kathleen hi carrie how are you i'm doing well thank you so kathleen and i go back a little bit so when i was in dc we we i think we crossed paths there a couple times we have a, a friend in common joe sudbay so anyway um but oh yeah i was excited to what
0: love yeah. joe, <laughs> oh, <she loved> joe. <laughs> this is if like
1: the joe fan club if you're not following at joe sudbay you need to be following at joe sudbay oh, so cool. uh on Twitter, but yeah i I was excited to have Kathleen on because I wanted to talk to a historian a little bit about what it would take for Joe Biden to turn in a truly great potentially historic uh, presidency and and what i 'm seeing is the potential makings of that part of that is is President Biden being. Pretty unapologetic and clear-eyed, it seems, about delivering fast results, you know, learning a lot of lessons from the Obama administration, not being tri- tripped up from this sort of centrist cloud that hung over the Democrats for so long. But another thing that, that is playing into it is just this historic moment, the pandemic, the sputtering economy, the, you know, unbelievable job losses, uh, a potential racial reckoning on hand. And so, Kathleen, can you give us a little bit of your take on how a, a political moment plays into potentially producing, is uh, the you know, the context that plays into producing a potentially historic presidency?
2: Yeah, I don't think it can be underestimated. I think it's the necessary but not sufficient ingredient to making a great presidency and don't sleep on Joe Biden. Um, This presidency does have the potential to be a great, a historic presidency in the ways that we think about Franklin Roosevelt, albeit with a totally different character in office. But the task before Joe Biden echoes the task that Franklin Roosevelt faced, which was restoring confidence, legitimacy in government, and making the federal government especially work on behalf of ordinary Americans. That's a task that we have drifted away from. And it's something that Franklin Roosevelt really presented to the American people and forged an entire democratic coalition on that presence, on that precedent. But I think that you know, with Joe Biden, you have a very different leadership style than Franklin Roosevelt. And I actually think it might work a little bit better than what Franklin Roosevelt had going because Franklin Roosevelt was a very personality president. We have these phrases to describe different presidential leadership styles. And Franklin Roosevelt was very centered on his own personal appeal to the American people. And I think Joe Biden very adeptly depersonalized his campaign for the presidency. And I think if he does the same thing for his administration, That might actually wind up working in a lot of ways and working for ordinary Americans. Why? Why does that
1: work if you depersonalize it a little bit, if you don't if you don't end up having this, you know, this sort of forceful personality that we think of associated with people like, um, you know, FDR and Lyndon B. Johnson and and you know, Abraham Lincoln, stuff like that.
2: And those things can work. And, I, you know, I take nothing away from the accomplishments yes. of Franklin Roosevelt no. and Lyndon Johnson. And, you know, it certainly worked for Lyndon Johnson to be boorish in many ways and stand over his allies in Congress and this kind of thing. I think it, I think it can work for Joe Biden because of our news media culture. Prior to President Trump, we were kind of engaged in a very performative political culture. And I think that, The personalized presidency, and of course, we just came out of the most personalized presidency in the modern era, you know, and I'm not praising it, but it was a deeply personalized presidency really plays into that kind of performative political culture. If you want to return to substance, if you want to return to policy, if you want to return to regulation and benefits for ordinary Americans, then you want to return to a substantive political culture. And when you deplay, you know, when you displace the force of your own personality, and you center. Here's my plan. When you center, here's my cabinet officers. Look at their competence. <laughs> when you center those kinds of things, you stand a far better chance of actually accomplishing things for ordinary Americans.
0: So, Kathleen, you've you've written a lot about race. Uh, you know, with a number of uh, you know the drug war, and and your piece in the American Prospect actually focuses on on the Republican Party, sort of really focused on on that their white core base and how there's a up coming. And I want to ask you about that in a bit. But before I do that, uh one of the criticisms of Joe Biden in the primary was that he was sort of an old, boring white guy. You know, you had all these potentially historic figures. You had Kamala Harris and Elizabeth Warren and Cory Booker. And and yet here's this boring white guy. Now, are we really going to go with this boring white guy? And so we elect this boring white guy. But now you're talking about sort of that de-emphasize of the personality. I mean, him being a boring white guy, not actually sort of works in that favor, correct?
2: <laughs> I mean, in terms of what I was just describing, the fact I would never, ever describe Joe Biden as a placeholder, right? He's, he's not a placeholder. He's a president, and he's going to bring his own vision, his own tools, and his own skill set. And, of course, the recent evidence that we've seen is that his, his being on the ticket, at the top actually did influence a number of votes among white ethnic lower income men. So it, it mattered that he was there and it matters that he's president now. But insofar as he's not a magnet for controversy because he hasn't made it all about him, whether he's white or not, he just hasn't made it all about him. That's a good thing. We wanna return to substance and policy and we wanna return to, I mean, Let's face it. Joe Biden is not just looking at restoring confidence in government. He's actually looking at something more basic, which is restoring confidence in our electoral pro- process. We don't even have that now. Um, so we're really dealing with first steps here. And I think it's I think it may work to Biden's benefit that he has de-emphasized his personality. I also think it will work to his benefit that he has taken such a reach, a broad reach, an encompassing reach when it comes to staffing his presidency. Everybody can name their favorite progressives who have been included in certain posts. There have also been conservatives, like within the Democratic Party coalition, we would call them conservatives appointed as well. He has really taken, I I think he's gone out of his way, and I think it's been very deliberate on the part of Biden and his administration to take an encompassing approach. And I think that's good because Democrats have a, you know, we always say this as Democrats that we have a tendency to, you know, when we get into a fire line, firing line we form a circle i think when you take this kind of encompassing approach you stand a better shot of having your arguments in-house behind the curtain and then when the policy is revealed and when the the benchmark is set you have consensus around that point that's not to say the media will you know treat it as a consensus and present it as one but at least within behind the, the scenes if we had the kind of media culture to, in Franklin Roosevelt's time, as we do today, the war between Harry Hopkins and Harold Ickes would have prevented anything from getting done during the first part of the New Deal. I mean, there was all kinds of, you know, feuds and trespasses that both men committed, and that would have dominated a more superficial media culture. But instead, people were out of work. Six out of 10 Americans needed some type of relief. And so they focused on the Works Progress Administration They focused on the public works agency. They didn't focus on the feud between Hopkins and Ickes. Today, sadly, we don't live in that world. You know, we don't have a media culture that's focused on substance and policy. It's interesting
1: because, you know, what we have seen the the media be just, you know, like a dog with a bone on this idea of bipartisanship. And it's a very limited definition that they're using of bipartisanship, that being that you must get Republican votes on any piece of legislation that goes through Congress, that type of thing. And, you know, what we've seen is, is, is similar to what you're saying, which is Joe Biden is pretty much just bypassed that. He redefined bipartisanship and decided that the discussion that, you know, he he can't push push every piece of legislation through, you know, a simple majority vote in a reconciliation process. But for his first piece of legislation, that's clearly what's going to happen. And he's just not gotten bogged down by this media obsession with bipartisanship and just decided to have the in-house conversation you're talking about between Joe Manchin on one side and, and, you know, sort of liberal House Democrats on the other. And, you know, I think that's going to produce a much better outcome for that bill one way or the other than than would have been. I will also note, you know, I've just been listening to um, John Meacham's, uh, historian John Meacham's Hope Through History podcast. And I just finished the FDR and Churchill podcast. And it is interesting that he does, Biden does seem to have, some of the things, some of the qualities. He's not the force of, of, of nature that these men were, right? But he does seem to have some of the qualities, which is one of their biggest qualities was their their candor with the American people. Yeah. And that's one of the things that has been most notable about Joe Biden coming out of the Trump presidency, where basically everything <laughs> was a lie, right? Yeah. You know, the we're rounding the corner on the coronavirus as, you know, the, as we're hitting the hundreds of thousands of deaths, right? Um, and Joe Biden is... Is just clear-eyed saying no, we're not rounding the corner, you know. But so candor is one, um, and the other, the other thing was this sort of entrepreneurial way of continuing to get up and go again, no matter what happens. So I think um, it, for both FDR and uh, Churchill, there was a little bit of an experimental. Um, piece about them where no matter what happened, they just figured, OK, well, if it doesn't work, then I'll just move on from that failure. I'll admit the failure and I'll try something else a different time. And it doesn't have to be catastrophic. Um, and that and that reminds me very much of what Joe Biden has described with um, And we'll see if it plays out. But with him having to rebuild his life, um, you know, after some of his biggest tragedies and just you get up every day and you just go out there and do it again. You just get up every day and you go out there and do it again. And that level of stick is something that I think could benefit him and certainly benefited both both of the men I mentioned. So.
2: So my mentor in um, political history, Barry Hall would open his lecture on Franklin Roosevelt, not by talking about Franklin Roosevelt, but by talking about pilot training and the way in which they used to train pilots in the simulator. And they may still do this. In the final days of that pilot's training, they would program a fatal accident into the simulator. There was like nothing that the pilot could actually do to prevent the accident. And the test was who's trying something until the very second the plane crashes. You know, you don't stop trying, pushing the buttons, doing something until the actual paint plane goes down. And Mm -hmm. I think Joe Biden, and and when I say that he has, you know, displaced the force of his own personality, I don't mean to dismiss or diminish the very personal connection that people who have struggled with addiction or in recovery and families that have struggled with addiction and recovery and also widows and widowers who lost a spouse at a very young age. I think he actually has very deeply resonant connections with those communities. And so there's all kinds of associations that I think are very magnetic for Joe Biden. But Especially on the heels of a Trump presidency, we're not seeing Joe Biden looking to make himself the headline every minute of every single day, right? I mean, just based on Twitter feed alone, I think we can see that, right? He's not looking to be the story, he's looking for a return of the American, you know, of of ordinary Americans' well being. To be the story and i'm not coming at this i mean i think the entire time we've been talking it seems like i've been you know the biggest joe biden supporter and i always was i'm certainly coming at this from a progressive left per- perspective um, i just think we might be sleeping on the possibilities of a historic a truly great presidency as far as the transparency goes I want to say something a little controversial, and that is that Trump actually had a very effective presidential management style in that he developed a style that actually communicated very well with his intended audience. Problem being... His intended audience was 44% of the American people. Most presidents construe the audience for the presidency to be the entire American public. Now, of course, none of them are strangers to, you know, self-interested calculations or things like that. But, you know, Donald Trump had a very affected method, including his boorishness, his insults, all of that kind of, you know, woman walking by a construction site, all of that sort of language really endeared him to his own particular audience. And part of the task that is before Joe Biden is to restore the American public writ large as the audience for the presidency. I don't see a way he can do that without a focus on the transparency you were talking about. I don't see that there's a way to build those bridges again and restore a substantive political culture without a focus on transparency.
0: Kathleen I mentioned earlier that that American prospect piece that you wrote, and uh I'll actually give you the opportunity to sort of describe that thesis um the piece is excellent, everybody should go read it, but can you talk a little bit about that piece
2: yeah, sure so. This was I am not the sort of political historian who studies political parties or even talks about presidential leadership style. I'm happy to do those things. But Carrie's lead off question was a little bit of a tip off to my point of view, which is a little bit more context driven. A lot of the presidential historians think like, you know, character is destiny and whoever you are makes the moment. And I actually care much more about, well, what is the moment? What are the specific circumstances? So this was an unusual piece for me, but I took exactly that lens to it, this sort of deeper structural lens. And that is to say that since 1968, the Republican Party has forged their presidential coalition, so their national coalition on a politics of whiteness. That's not to say... I'm not equating being white with the politics of whiteness, although of course there's a relationship between those two things. I'm talking about a party that's dedicating to preserving the mechanisms of institutionalized racism. And when I started thinking about it, I realized that actually we've always had a political party dedicated to that since the country's founding. So since the Democratic Republicans, what we now consider today to be the modern Democratic Party, which traces its lineage from Thomas Jefferson to Jackson to our modern moment. Since, you know, When Franklin Roosevelt reinvented the New Deal coalition and Blacks slowly left the Republican Party and joined the Democratic coalition, that was the pivotal moment of change. And it was finalized in 1968 with Nixon's election to the White House. But we've always had a political party dedicated to the politics of whiteness. And it's kind of striking because, you know, the demographic destiny of this country, the political destiny that awaits this country is quite different. From the politics of whiteness so the piece that i wrote for the american prospect on the future of american politics not only talks about the collapse of the republican party it also speculates as to whether we're going to continue to live in a political system that's oriented around only two parties because my thesis is lacking the predicate of whiteness as a unifying force and i don't think anyone should underestimate the degree to which whiteness has been a unifying force in America. We just saw that.
0: Yeah, we just saw that the last four years.
2: Right. Mm -hmm. So I don't think anyone should underestimate the force of whiteness. As that's diminishing, I think other factional lines will start to surface and become the new boundaries of partisanship. And we already see that in the Republican Party, right? We see a kind of coastal elite traditional conservative Republicans, which I mean, frankly, there's only three of them left at this point, but we see that component right in the Republican party. We see this kind of Holly Cruz attempt and in some ways, Marco Rubio attempt to seize the mantle of Trump. And then we see what I would call, I sometimes call it the sassification of the Republican Party. So we see a kind of Ben Sassy, maybe hybrid approach between those two things, you know, where he tries to be the hip youth pastor focused on the free market. You know what I mean? So there's this sort of sassification of the Republican Party. We can already see some very real boundaries, In the Republican Party, I was listening to you guys talk before I um, came on. That was a mistake. That was a mistake. (laughs) I actually really enjoyed it. And (laughs) one of the things that was said was, you know, what are the Republicans thinking? I can tell you exactly what they're thinking. The Republicans cannot win with Donald Trump. They can't do it. But the thing is, they can't win without him either. He was the only one who could call the necessary votes, for, votes from those three coalitions within the Republican Party. So he was their Faustian bargain. And that bill has come due. And they cannot win with this man anymore, but they cannot win without him. They just don't have the demographics in place. They don't have the politics in place.
0: So, uh, Carrie, we have time for one more question. Do you, um, I could see I you. have two
2: more questions, but, I, but I'll do <laughs>
0: I I will I will see the floor to you. Go ahead. Go ahead.
1: Well, I wonder. So, okay. so look, he's Biden's dealing with some hurdles here. Right. Which is which is, of course, a very narrowly divided Congress. And I wonder and I know other people wonder, too, how how does what does he have to do in order to get past that? What does he have to do? Because he's going to have to he's going to have to find a way to bridge that. And and if he's going to be a great president, right? What what does he how how does he get past that congressional gridlock? Does he just work within the framework of Democrats? That's it, and he just finds a way to galvanize them. I mean, is that you know? I mean, or is is it extensive use of the bully pulpit in order to push conservative Democrats more towards a, a you know a meeting with progressives in the
2: middle? I, I don't know. I think you have to match the substance with the audience, and I think that. Joe Biden has decided that pandemic relief is something that he's willing to shake off whatever the Washington political establishment thinks is wise and thinks is best. He believes he has found his consensus out there among the American people. And so he is willing to use the mechanisms like reconciliation that will allow him to evade some of the obstacles that are typically in place. There might be other policy objectives that he has where he decides his audience is actually in the halls of Congress, and he might be forced to work through what we would traditionally call a bipartisan thing. He might decide that his audience for substance abuse, harm prevention policies can best be mobilized from single issue advocacy groups, right? I think he has to match what he thinks the substance of the issue is with the appropriate audience. Is he trying to move the Overton window to the left on substance abuse and harm reduction? If so, the advocacy groups. Is he trying to pass some kind of meaningful bipartisan legislation? Well, then that's obvious. Is he actually trying to get checks into the hands of ordinary Americans? Well, then he's just going to use the process of reconciliation. So he's got to match whatever the objective is and what whoever the audience is. I would not discount the importance of cabinet appointments in that, by the way. There is so much discretion given to executive offices, and we all have cabinet appointments that we're happy with. We all have cabinet appointments that maybe we're not happy with, and that differs from person to person. I would say that it's it should be foremost in the minds of the Biden administration that they need to restore a culture of regulation and a culture of, let's say, unabashed pursuit of the interests of ordinary americans in the halls of the department of justice especially that's something that was a letdown during the obama administration i'm frank to say Um, you know president obama pursued fewer corporate wrongdoers than ronald reagan did Um, so you know we need to have the department of justice all of its sections not just the civil rights sections all of the sections work on behalf of the American people. So I look forward to that. Everything that I've told you guys seems to be something that the Biden administration already knows. They seem Sh- to be
0: shockingly, shockingly. <laughs> and sometimes they sound like a bunch of liberal bloggers.
2: <laughs> no, I mean... I'm kind of surprised, I have to say, Marcos, I am a little bit surprised that they seem to understand, well, let's not put Biden out there and sell him as a person. They seem to understand that, they seem to know, know that. And and that comforts me because we don't always see, let's say, the best decision-making from the Democratic you know party establishment apparatus all of the time on all questions. And they really do seem, whoever Biden's advisors are and, and Biden's own political voice, and I don't think we should underestimate that, you know, whoever's in charge there, that voice, I think, has has steered them very competently through a very um, difficult time. His honeymoon is obviously you know, going to be longer than most because we're coming out of you know, such a dark shadow. But I really have to salute the decision making that's going on in the Biden administration. And I can't wait. I, I really can't wait. None of us can wait until we start to see the, those effects ripple out and change the lives of ordinary Americans.
0: Kathleen, thank you so much for joining us. Such a pleasure, such a great conversation. Thanks. Thanks guys. Carrie, it, we can summarize that I guess is so far so good, huh? <laughs>
1: Yeah. And, you know, I want to be clear about something, too. Some some of our listeners know a little bit about me and know a little and maybe a lot more about you. But like I didn't spend, Obama, you know, the first months of Obama's administration and I didn't spend the first years, be, you know, feeling laudatory. Um, towards him and, you know, and and singing his praises. In fact, just the opposite. I, I was pretty hard on him because I was covering LGBTQ issues and not much was happening in that
0: oh, realm. It was brutal. I mean, it, it was, was Larry brutal. Summers. It was all these Wall Street people getting right. in positions of authority. For every
1: progressive issue. Yeah. Oh,
0: brutal. Yeah. It it hurts. So, and so.
1: I, I- I don't want people to think I'm just like, you know, throwing a bunch of sh- sunshine on the latest Democrat who's in the Oval Office. That's really I thought I would have at this point a ton more bones to pick with the Biden administration by this far end. I thought I would be already beside myself and writing an angry screed every day.
0: And, you know, where you see it in a lot of places is, is, for example, the income threshold for the uh for the. um for the checks, right? The stimulus stimulus check, where Democrats were sort of settled at 75,000. And then here comes Joe Manchin, arbitrarily for no freaking reason at all, is demanding fifty, right? right? And then a week later, he quietly says, All right, I guess it's 75,000. Like, there was no public berating. There is, I mean, nothing. It was just clearly Biden was quietly doing his thing behind the scenes. Sort of really goes to Kathleen's point earlier on that he's sort of, yeah. he's, he's not going to be out there making it about himself. Yeah. You know, tr- Trump would be out there saying, like, don't make me look bad. Vote for this. Yeah. Not Joe yeah, Biden. And- Joe Biden. I don't know what he offered, what kind of deals he's cutting. But he brought Manchin along without mm-hmm. conceding to that conservative Democrat. uh viewpoint, Which would he, have been the old Democrat.
2: He seemed to
1: express an openness to it. And I saw a little bit in the press about how, you know, the White House isn't demonstrating enough leadership on this and whatever. And then and then shortly, shortly, you know, you see um mansions start to take these baby steps of backing away from a hardline position on this. And I think just yesterday said, well, you know, the House as the House Democrats, which are the more liberal end of this this spectrum, right, are going through the the process of figuring out what those uh, thresholds will be for the direct payments. They say, this is a, this is a non-starter to be just at 50,000 or a hundred thousand for a couple. We got to be higher than that. Um, not wait, to mention wait, like, hold uh, on, hold on,
0: hold on, Carrie. No. I'm sorry. We're oh, talking about great. the Senate and our next guest is yes. an expert on the Senate. So let's yes. bring Joan McCarter on. Uh, she is a senior staff writer at daily codes. Joan, um, from Idaho. Welcome. Hey.
1: Hi. I
0: don't. So-
3: Kathleen is a really hard act to
0: follow. Oh, you'll be fine. Almost all our all our guests are great, including you. So I don't think it's a problem. Uh, so we ended up getting sucked in talking about the Joe Manchin and the Senate, and yeah. here you are, who actually has been following this more closely than anybody else. <laughs> so, uh, so glad you can join us to talk about this. Since so the Senate has become the center of the political universe right now, right? everything from impeachment to almost all the legislation, and predominantly mm-hmm. because Joe Manchin and maybe Kristen Cinema, mm-hmm. but really it's it's the Joe Manchin show. And as far as we can tell, Joe Biden is really handling him really well, right?
3: Yeah. Yeah. It, it was sort of shocking to me. Everything Joe Biden has done thus far has been shocking to me, <laughs> as you guys are saying already. <laughs> so yeah. far, so good. <laughs> I, I ready for fight. We don't have to pick fights. That's that's phenomenal. Um, and I think part of it is that, yeah, he was in the Senate forever. He knows the Senate. He knows how it works. He, he can... He can do the rubbing elbows kind of thing. He can pull the right strings quietly behind, behind the scenes. He knows how the Senate works. But the thing I think that I'm most amazed by with Biden is that he is capable of learning. He looks back to 2008, 2009. He looks back to how they didn't do enough stimulus. And he says, we're not doing that again. It's and and then the Affordable Care Act fight that went on for as they tried to change. Yeah. He says, and oh, it, we're it, not it, doing it, that. It, we're it. not doing that. We can't afford it. And um, that's remarkable to me <laughs> and and really encouraging, really. encouraging. And
0: if you remember that fight, it was it was he's conservative. <laughs> Democrats. We had 59 seats. Right. So Joe, do Mar- I remember Joe that ran. fight, Marcos? Yeah. Ben Nelson and Max Walker, and Obama kept trying to give him stuff, and then they would move the goalposts, especially Bill Lieberman. Right, and and you have this seventy five versus fifty thousand, where it seemed maybe publicly that maybe Biden was wavering, but it does. In retrospect, I don't think he was wavering at all. I think he was working what he was doing his magic behind the scenes. Yeah. And wasn't willing to sort of keep doing the, like, we're going to keep conceding and giving ground for some mythical, what, bipartisanship or mythical concession to conservative Democrats on what the deficit that nope, not a single person who's voting cares about. Literally not a single person yep. cares. And, and I he, think he
3: was giving House Democrats the reign that they needed. To sort of ignore what was happening in the Senate and do their own thing and say, this is what we're doing. For the House progressives to say strongly, $50,000 does not cut it. For Maxine Waters, Waters to come in and say, you know, this is really going to harm people of color because they've been harmed the worst. Those are the businesses that aren't getting the PPP loans. These are the people who will really be punished by that. Don't let that happen. So House leadership could say, eh, we can't do it. Biden could say, yeah, you're right, Joe. you with us or no?
1: <laughs> right, so, and, Joe, and Joe could say, could decide whether it was going to be really important to him to become a pariah, you know, yeah. it, within the within the whole caucus and the Democratic Party for, you know, killing that deal.
3: I think part of what we're seeing is Joe Manchin sort of testing the waters to see how much he's going to be able to set the agenda. So I'm really glad to see early on that he's not, but that said, this is the first of many long fights. It's the, yeah, it's the part. If no, Joe it's just, Biden's going to be the FDR LBJ that he can be. I think in responding to this moment, we're probably going to have to get rid of the filibuster.
0: And just on this, again, this theme about learning his lessons, because it still blows my mind. Like, I I can't I, I just can't believe this is a real thing that's happening um, during the campaign. It didn't sound like he was he was talking yeah. Like everything that had happened during the Obama years was like perfect, and oh, I work with Republicans, and they came over to me, and we'd be like, "Well, those Republicans are like, you know, Arlen Specter, who then became a Democrat and then lost his election." So I'm not sure what you're bragging about. Um, these are people that are gone. Olympia Snow, they're gone, and um, so there was nothing during the campaign that suggested, "No, guys, this is going to be this is going to be great." <laughs> Trust yes. us.
1: And and. And to Joan's point of him learning and Joan was making it kind of specific to, you know, these negotiations with the Senate and with the Congress. Right. But to Joan's Joan's point, getting back to what you're saying, Marcos, about him learning, I actually think that he grew into the political moment. You know, when he was when, when he was talking about. Oh, the you know Republicans will they'll they'll come to me and we'll be able to deal with them and whatever. That was an early spring of last year. That was before the pandemic was was as we know it now. That was That's before we lost tens of millions of jobs and hadn't been able to get most of them back. That was before, you know, this situation was as dire as it has become. And I think that he grew with the political moment, which is damn good for all of us. And I hope he continues. But he he learned those lessons from the early Obama administration. But he also seems to have learned the lessons of what's happening with the political moment. And he may see it as a real opportunity to do far more than what he might have
0: done. For sure. Joan, so one of the things that, um you know, people are worried about with impeachment is that it would actually uh, slow down Joe Biden's agenda. And, uh, for sure it's, it's become, I mean, I don't know if there's any other business happening in the Senate right now. I I doubt it. Right. Do you get any sense that it's really going to slow things down or, or is it so full speed ahead on most of that key buying stuff, whether it's cabinet, um, confirmations or whether it's the stimulus, I'm not sure what it's called cares two or three or <laughs> whatever they want to call it. Um, Do you get the sense that the impeachment has in any way slowed that down or is it full speed ahead?
3: I think it's full speed ahead. And and they've got the advantage of the House now being free to do their two weeks of work to get it all ready. Um, The committees in the Senate are still working on this. Yeah, in some ways, I wish they had set up a special impeachment committee to hear all of this um, so that they could have the floor open for doing other things. But. Committees are still moving forward. They're still doing their work. I think the arrangement that Schumer and McConnell finally came to will allow them to get quite a bit done. Um, any delay that there's going to be on this is going to be thanks to McConnell for dragging his feet, first of all, before Inauguration Day, saying the Senate's going to be out until January 19th. So impeachment couldn't happen before January 20th. And then refusing to have a um, – Organizing agreement with Chuck Schumer, so and the it, committees were juggling. They didn't know right. who was in charge. They couldn't bring up nominees. It was it was a mess. And McConnell did that certainly on purpose, dragging stuff out.
0: It probably um, doesn't matter in the bit. You know, we're talking a four year presidency, so probably in the yeah. in the long scheme of things, in the long game. Uh, and I'm actually well,
3: what what, is- what they do have a very real deadline of March fourteenth for getting all of this done because that's when the extended unemployment benefits drop off. So that's a cliff, but But they're setting up this, round to not have that kind of cliff at least if ron wyden has his way there won't be that cliff he's saying we push this through until september and then in september when we're doing the next budget anyway we build it in there if we have to
0: so that would sort of slot in with the whole learning lessons theme which yeah. would be again would be fantastic um, yeah. speaking of deadlines and there's this artificial 100 day agenda deadline right is there it's yeah. it really doesn't matter right and i'm not even sure who came up with that or where it came from Does anybody really care about that? Does somebody have a clock going anywhere that's counting down the 100 days?
3: Um, David Dayan at American Prospect is counting down, but I don't think (laughs) that he's doing it. I think it's just a handy tool for him to talk (laughs) about what's happening. Um, No, the 100-day thing is is not real, Um, particularly in a pandemic, particularly in a pandemic. Although, you know, saying, okay, I want to get how many hundreds of millions of shots in arms by in the first hundred days. I don't remember what it was, but I think it was a hundred well, million shots in a hundred days. I, uh, the, date,
1: the date of the hundred days, right, is after March. And, the, and Democrats, I mean, gosh, knock on wood. I don't want to jinx it. I'm knocking on my dresser right now. So anyway, <laughs> but knock on wood, like they, they're going to, they, Democrats are poised at least to deliver this uh, rescue plan, this relief plan, Before the 100 days are up. And I mean, honestly, that was one of Joe Biden's biggest promises. So he may be able to achieve one of his biggest, most consistent promises within the first 100 days. I don't know how you can look at anything like that and say that wouldn't be a giant success.
3: Particularly considering what he was fighting against. I mean, trying to get his government up and running when it was really trashed. Trump trashed absolutely everything. And the people who are left are downhearted. They're exhausted. They're depressed. (laughs) They've got a lot of of building up of morale to do just to get government functioning again, much less getting all of the new people back. Mm -hmm. They want to get a lot of Obama administration people back in to, to try to shore up where they've had losses, but they've got to weed out a lot of political people that Trump put in. It's a wreck. And so that they're moving this fast and doing this well, considering what they inherited. I'm, I'm, I'm impressed. I I would be saying Joe Biden's going to be a great president. Joe Biden so far is a really good president.
1: Yeah, so far he is. Can I get back to the filibuster a second? So first of all, I want to say, if they manage to deliver this win early on, I think, you know, success begets success, right? I mean, Mm -hmm. getting a success that makes, the vast majority of Americans feel good about what their government is doing for them. That makes Democrats feel good about mm-hmm. what they've delivered, delivered sets mm-hmm. up more successes. But I wonder what you think, because at some point, you know, there are certain things that they can, that Democrats can do through reconciliation. And then there's a lot of things they can't. And I wonder which issue you think is the best issue to, poke and prod Joe Manchin on in terms of him not wanting to be left with the legacy of not pushing that thing through because he stood in the way of of Nixing the filibuster. I mean, and we, we have to deal with Kirsten Cinema yeah. too, but I just yeah. am wondering if you have a read on which issue is it that you think could really pry Joe Manchin off of this Senate filibuster rules thing?
3: That one's easy. The John Lewis Voting Rights Act.
1: Hmm.
0: You think I he think so. would get? Re- he would vote to eliminate the filibuster to make sure that passed.
3: If it's going to pass, he's going to have to. And is is Joe Manchin going to be the one to say, "Yeah, I voted with the white supremacists"?
0: So I'm I the the theory-
3: from being restored. It's a restoration of the Voting Rights Act.
1: Let's remember, and this is something that Joe Sudbay always reminds me of, is that his predecessor was Robert Byrd. And Robert Byrd used the filibuster to try to stop the Civil Rights Act from going through. And then towards the end of his life, reneged on that, apologized for it, and said he never should have done it. So Mm -hmm. does does Joe Manchin want to be, you know, sitting in the seat that was once occupied by Robert Byrd, used as a as a, you know, blockade to progress, or tried to use it as a blockade to progress? Does he want to continue that legacy, or does he want to not have to try to clean up his legacy later in life? Right. Like Byrd right did? now,
3: when we're seeing Republican state after Republican state passing more laws to restrict voting rights at the same time, right. so it's timely, it's important, and. In- yeah, and I'm sorry I missed out on the Joe Sudbe love" earlier. Hi, Joe. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so, I mean, I, I have two reasons why I I, I think that um, that Joe mentioned may actually go ahead and, and eliminate the filibuster, but to, to eliminate the filibuster, first of all is I don't really get the sense he's running for re-election again. I mean, it's such a tough state. He barely won last time and he sounded suspiciously like a Democrat lately. <laughs> um, so so it doesn't sound like the old Joe Manchin who's going to thread that needle and, and pretend to be a Republican, but really not. Uh, and the second one though, is, you get rid of the filibuster, he would be the most powerful man in the Senate. Like he would be the person you'd have to go to and give stuff to to get anything yeah. to pass. And I don't understand why he wouldn't give himself that power. Uh, right. In the same vein that I don't understand why Republicans stick with Trump when he's completely trashed their party. Right. There's a, <laughs> a self-interest component that you think would, would sort of emerge itself, uh, assert itself. So I'm, I'm hoping that's the case. John, is is that Voting Rights Act, is that the next major piece of legislation Democrats are going to take up after COVID relief?
3: possibly probably huh. i think in the house is going to be it's going to be the full hr1 in the house which has larger reforms in it but it includes the voting rights act so i, I think in- that it'll come from the house next yeah
0: does it include dc statehood
3: good question i think last last, last year's time- version did i believe
0: yeah it did for sure yeah. I'm so
3: i'm not sure what have to double check on that but i think so i think
1: so, so. i think I, you're right that it comes from the House, and that's HR1, of course. But I do think the White House will be involved with obviously strategizing over what to do next. The one thing we should remember is that, you know, we had. Uh, Senator Schatz on earlier this this year or late last year. Anyway, who knows? But he he said we can get a lot of our climate change initiatives done via reconciliation. Mm-hmm. So there mm-hmm. is I mean, I'm not trying to contradict you. I don't know for sure, but there is. the Well, possibility- you're limited in how
3: many bites you can take of the reconciliation apple. Mm. I mean, some are arguing you can only do it one time. In the legislative session, someone said, "Well, yeah, no, but maybe two. So who's, at most, well, we can that, have Mitch two Mitch McConnell,
1: goes. You, can't, you can't do it more than <laughs> if I haven't done it more than three times. You can't do it more than once. I mean, you know, sorry, <laughs> You're a
0: master, uh, Joan. What are the chances of uh, Wall Street reform? Financial services tax.
3: I don't think that's going to be a huge priority legislatively. I think yeah. that there's a lot that the administration can do, and and there are a lot of Elizabeth Warren allies now in the administration. So I think most of what we're going to see happening there is going to be regulatory.
1: Kathleen was saying, right. you know, look, you can do a lot through the Department of Justice. You can do yeah. a lot through Treasury. She didn't say Treasury, but you can do a lot through Treasury to start to restore Americans' view of government and what the government can do for them.
3: yeah.
2: So, right. anyway, I mean, some of the just-
3: things we, we are going to have to see the Senate and both chambers turn to Congressional Review Act on a lot of regulatory stuff that Biden can't wipe away. Some of it, he, some of it wasn't fully um, implemented yet. So we can just say, no, we're not doing it. Some of it, Congress is going to have to rescind. So um, that might be some of what they have to do once they get COVID relief done there there's there's still cleanup to do so that's going to have to happen um i would love to see them slip in some postal service stuff
0: oh, quickly that's to a save it one, that's a
3: big one yeah because dejoy is going to come back probably Louis dejoy the postmaster general as soon as next week he's going to be announcing more cost-cutting measures more more sabotage of the postal service.
1: Sabotaged. right yeah. of course yeah
3: so um that i would like to see happen fast and i hope it does
0: right uh and then on top of that you have the judges right this was right number one priority of the republican previous republican um leadership and we've seen a, a fantastic number of people stepping down older liberals who are finally like ah, thank god we yeah. can finally we can, <laughs> we, can, we can we're safe we can we can we can retire now and well, what so, i
3: love they're not actually a lot of them are not actually totally retiring they're taking senior status which allows them to stay on the bench still take some cases but have their seat filled by a new person so it's like a twofer biden (laughs) gets two friendly judges for one
0: it's 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 a a surreptitious way to expand the size of the courts without actually expanding the size of the courts. although that's still on the table uh, we've heard Biden bring that up a couple of times. So he it's still in his mind, the whole commission, I think, right now.
3: Yeah, that's that's just at the Supreme Court level. I think probably at the lower levels, that's going to mostly be done by the Senate. But um, at the Supreme Court level, yeah, he's got this commission set up to decide where they need to expand, whether they need to expand. I'm hoping that'll be a yes, because that's the next thing that's coming up. All of these great things he wants to do, you know that Texas... Primarily, Texas, some other Republican states are going to be there to challenge everything Biden tries to get done, so court reform is has got to be way up there on the list too and there really isn't anything that's not at the top of the list You're right <laughs> but four right. years of Trump and McConnell.
1: The good, the good news about that is that anything they accomplish is also a huge win. Like, right, right. You know, There isn't anything that isn't important, so anything they manage to do is important. This is going to be huge. Yeah. yeah,
0: yeah, I think this this child credit, I think, is going to be one of the most important pieces of legislation, not just from a um, policy standpoint, and it'll reduce child poverty by half, according to some estimates. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's important politically.
1: Three thousand to thirty five hundred, just for listeners, right? It's the you're talking about the tax credit for children, right? right.
0: It's an ongoing payment, right? So for a
3: year. For a year, so they take what you would have gotten, basically in your child tax credit, um, depending on income, thirty six hundred for children under six, three thousand for children six to seventeen, and they di- divide it up monthly, and you get it in cash. You don't have to wait until you file your taxes. I to know get that it's back.
0: great, and the idea you get it every it,
3: month in cash,
0: it's, but it's well, only going
3: to run for a year.
0: But the intent—they're—they're they're trying book. to write it in yes. a way that they can keep it going yes. again, and yes. then 2022 becomes a question of: Are you going to vote for uh your continued thirty-six thousand, you know, thirty-six hundred dollars in annual yeah. cash uh, for, for your child. children, per child, or are you going to side with the Republicans? And I suspect this stuff about Marjorie Green Taylor—it gets us riled up. It doesn't. It's not going to. Count, no votes are going to be won or lost by that. But if it's a question of you want that check coming to you, I think maybe even some QAnon people may have to think twice. So I think there's a yeah. lot that can be done right now that sets up the Democrats for success in two years because we need those bigger ma- majorities. And every competitive Senate district into the 2022 is a 2020 battleground state. The Wisconsin, Iowa, Pennsylvania, Florida, I mean, North Carolina, Georgia. <laughs> I mean, yep. It's, it's not asking- going to be easy.
1: I'm asking a final question, real quick, lightning round, Joe, on behalf of Kara, which is, is student uh, student loan, uh, is the White House going to take action on that? Can Biden do it alone? Does he think he can do it alone? And where do you think he'll come down on that?
3: Biden can do it alone. I don't know if Biden wants to do it alone. I mean, we do have to remember where he comes from. Um, <laughs> All right. <laughs> the, That's the biggest banking state in the
0: in the oh, country. Nice, so nice. I think
3: that that might be a little vestige of who Joe Biden used to be, still there in his heart. I don't think he thinks he can do it. He can, as far as every senator that I've talked to about it.
1: Sure. Kira is promising a scathing diary right now. (laughs) That's what happened. Sorry.
0: So that's all the time. That's all. Sorry, I wish we could keep going, but that's all the time we have today. Joan, thank you so much for joining us. Walter Einenkel, thank you for producing. Thanks to Kathleen uh, for joining us and talking about uh, the presidency and the opportunity. Joe Biden has to be a transformative president. Uh, Everybody, please stay safe. Uh, Just a little programming note. I will be on Bill marred this friday if you want to catch that i'll try not to make a fool out of myself thank you everybody so very very much remember to join us if you're listening on uh, your um on a podcast please leave a review and rate this podcast if you're watching us on youtube or facebook please like and follow and we will catch you next week where so much will happen that we, once again, as always, will run out of time to talk about all the things we want to talk about. Thank you so very much. Have a great week. Wear your mask. Thank you for listening. If you're enjoying the show, give us a rating wherever you get your podcast. You can always talk to us at DailyCoast.com or on Twitter at DailyCoast. See you next week.